and we look to you. Amen. Uh, what do you see in this picture? Sand, part of sand. Could be a beach, could be a place to kick back and relax a little bit. Uh, some people, they look at this, they look at the sand and they see potential. Uh, they see things like this. Wonderful things. Amazing, aren't they? Made out of sand. Sand art. It's great, isn't it? How? Exactly. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Really is amazing. Uh, it, all these things, they come from someone looking at a pile of sand, um, looking at this kind of millions of disordered granules of stone and seeing the possibility for them to become more. Now, in that person's mind, they look at that random kind of beach and, and they imagine what it can be and then they work at it to come into being. Um, I think art is probably all like that, isn't it? It's probably what makes the artist more than their kind of their skill or their technique, but the ability to see the potential for something, the, the potential for beauty. Now, some of us are artistic, others of us struggle, but all of us must consider the question, what do we see when we look at humanity? And, and not just humanity in general terms, what do we see when we look at the people who we who we who are just about us all the time, the people on the bus or, or in the shop or in the class or, or in our street, in our neighbourhood. When we see people, what do we see? And then maybe we struggle to see too much. Just a pile of sand, millions of disordered granules of stone. Well, our passage urges us to see more than just the sand. It urges us to, do when we look at people, to see the potential for glory. Uh, this is part two this week. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at the first half of John chapter four. Uh, in the first half, we see Jesus and his disciples traveling through Samaria. Uh, and on, on that journey, Jesus has this kind of chance encounter with a woman from Samaria. He's, he's resting on the journey at a well. His disciples go off into the town to buy food. And, and this woman comes by herself to get water. Now she, she, she comes and Jesus asks her for a drink. And she's taken aback by that because the Jews, Jesus is a Jew, and the Samaritans, they hate each other. They have nothing to do with each other. Why is he speaking to her? Yeah, but Jesus then tells her that he can give water which can quench her thirst forever, the water of eternal life. Jesus isn't interested in the social barriers between these groups. Um, he wants this woman to find life. Kind of tentatively, maybe skeptically, she asks for the water probably with no real understanding of what he's talking about, but he wants her to find life. And, and so he, he gently probes some of her backstory. As she's come to collect water on her own. She's come at a time of day when nobody goes to collect water. She, she's avoiding people, or people are avoiding her. And, and we find out that she has jumped from relationship to relationship, marriage to marriage to marriage, with the implication that she's done so immorally. Now, Jesus wants her to drink from the spring of living water, so she has to let go of her sin. And, and she responds, and in a sense, she's, she's asking Jesus to tell her where to go to make a sacrifice for sin. Where does she go to find the forgiveness she needs? And Jesus says, the times are changing. All of the old shadows are being fulfilled. The true worshippers will not need to go to Jerusalem or anywhere like that. Now the place to go is in the Spirit. 
He says how the Christ has come to bring in these new times of the Spirit. So those who want their sin taken away don't need to take a sacrifice to Jerusalem. If you want your sin taken away, you must trust in Christ. And the conversation reaches its its high point there, really. And And the woman says to him, she says, I don't really understand what you're talking about, but I do know that when the Messiah comes, he will explain it. And Jesus says in verse 26, the waiting is over. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And he drops that bomb and the disciples walk in. Verse 27, that's where we pick things up. Uh, The the events in our passage are a bit like a sandwich. Um, Verse 27 to 30, this woman runs back to the town shouting, come and see Jesus. In verse 31 to 38, Jesus and his disciples, they have a conversation about food and about harvest. But we learn more about who Jesus is. And then at the end of the passage, verse 39 to 42, the people of the town come to Jesus and Jesus stays with them. Now let's look through it then. The first bit, verse 27 to 30. The disciples, verse 27, they come back. They walk in at this crucial point in the conversation. Just as Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, then the disciples come back. And they're amazed at what they see. Why is he talking with her? They're full of questions. But think about the woman first. Let's look at what she does. Verse 28. She left her water jar. Just a little detail. A little tiny detail. She left her water jar. The reason she went to the well was to get water and to bring the water back home. But, but when she got to the well, something more important has taken over. And she leaves her water jar and she rushes back to the town and says, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Does that not strike you as a little strange? The man who's told her everything she's done. Now, he hasn't literally gone through all the events of her life, has he? What, what, what is it that he told her? If you have the passage open, you can glance up to verse 16 and see that he said to her, go and get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, that's true. You've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. That's what Jesus told her. He, he put his finger on her sin. But, but you see that for this woman, what Jesus had said to her was so central to how she thought of herself. That was everything about her. That was, as far as she concerned, as far as she was concerned, all she had ever done. She's defined in full by her, her, her messy, sinful personal life. Jesus knows all about her. He knows her worst. He knows her darkest. Jesus knows her worst. And he's shouting, and she is shouting about it. She's going to the town saying, there's a man who knows all the rubbish in my life. Isn't that wonderful? It's a bit of a strange thing to say, isn't it? The people in the town have a pretty good idea of her worst. She went to the well in the heat of the day, alone, rejected by the others. She's got a reputation. Her deeds have gone before her. What, What might they have called her? Husband stealer. Probably much worse than that, wasn't it? But going to the well was a a regular reminder that she was alone because of what she had done. A a reminder of her shame. And yet here she is going back to the town saying to them, come, come with me. Where does she want them to come? It's back to the well, isn't it? And and if it wasn't obvious, the people in the town might just pause and say, why is this woman at the well at this time of the day? Nobody goes to the well at this time of the day unless, oh, of course, Unless they they can't face being with the others. 
And unless their sin hangs so heavy, they can't bear it. They can't bear the looks and the insults and the shame. So why then is she so liberated to meet a man who knows the worst about her? She's inviting all the town and she does it very persuasively. She manages to get them to come. Why does she invite them back to this place that is her place of shame? Well, the answer is Jesus, isn't it? Isn't it Jesus? There's something so compelling, so hopeful about meeting Jesus. And she met Jesus and he knew her worst. And he didn't push her away. He didn't ignore her. No, he offered her life. She couldn't keep that to herself. She said, come and see Jesus. I wonder if you know Jesus like that. Now we'll go on to see why he's like that. But is that how you know him? As someone who can see your very worst. Who knows you. The darkest corners of your life. He knows all about it. He knows and he doesn't push you away. He knows and he doesn't ignore you. He doesn't scold you. He offers life. For this woman, the fact that he knows is liberating. The fact that he knows. I wonder if it is for you. Does the fact that he knows make you want to shout to the world, come and see this Jesus. Come and see. Jesus knows my very worst. He doesn't push me away. But he offers me life. Now, I think sometimes we can, maybe it's just me, but I think maybe others as well, we, we hold back from telling others about Jesus because we think it's just going to seem so hypocritical. Now, especially when it's people who know us, warts and all, people closest to us, they, they, they see what we're really like. They know we're not very good Christians, whatever good Christian means. And we feel like we can't talk boldly about Jesus because we're such a mess. And when we think that, we've missed the point, haven't we? This woman hasn't got her life together. Everybody knows she's a mess. Yet because Jesus gives hope to those who are messed up and broken. Jesus gives hope to those who fail and fail and fail again. And because he gives hope, she can say, come and see, might this be the Messiah? Could it be? Might it be? Well, who is this Jesus? In verse 31 to 38, the the focus moves, our attention is brought to the disciples and Jesus, and they have a, a conversation about food and harvests. The disciples want Jesus to eat. That's, that's where the whole thing started in chapter 4. Uh, they're on this journey, they're tired. Jesus rests at the well as the disciples go to get food. Now they've brought the food back and they're saying, come on, eat something. And Jesus replies a bit mysteriously. He, he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What's he talking about? They haven't got an idea. Anything. Has somebody else managed to, to bring him some food from somewhere? What's, what's going on? You know, you know the saying that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And there's some truth in that, isn't there? I reckon it's also true, though, to say, if you find what someone will miss a meal for, you will find their heart. Find, find that thing that the person gets so occupied with, so caught up with that they, that they even forget to eat. Then you'll find what really drives them, for better or for worse. Now Jesus says to his disciples, he has something that has overtaken his physical hunger. And we see now what it is that really drives Jesus. What does he say in verse 34? My food, said Jesus, 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You see, as these disciples come back with the food, they're pressing Jesus to eat. As they, as they do that, his, his, his mind is filled with the conversation he's just had. He's watching this woman bound back to the town with hope in her heart. And he's being fed on it. It's nourishing him, it's sustaining him, it's energising him. Seeing that change in the woman. Now why? Well, he explains that this food is to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, I think here the unasked question of the disciples in verse 27 is answered. When, when the disciples come, what they're thinking is, what do you want? We're told that. Literally, what are you seeking? No, Jesus, what, what are you seeking with this woman? That's what they're thinking. We've already learned what Jesus is seeking. Back in verse 23, Jesus says the time has come when true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. The Father seeks true worshippers. And because he seeks true worshippers, he, he sent his own beloved Son into the world, and Jesus carries out that seeking mission. He's seeking true worshippers for his Father. Because Jesus loves his Father. His, his, his food, his, his very life is to do the will of his Father. That is the heart of Jesus. It's what he enjoys more than anything else. He loves to do what his Father wants. And his Father seeks true worshippers. He, he wants to give eternal life. He wants to give endless happiness in his presence. And Jesus feeds on doing the will of the Father. And so he says he will do his work. He will finish his work. Well, what's his work? What is the work of the Father? Well, we heard it in John chapter 3. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's what God sent his Son to do. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he cried out, Look, it is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus came into the world for that reason. He came that he might bear the sin of the world. He came knowing your worst. Knowing the worst of all the world. And knowing that our worst cannot stand before the judgment of God. Now the justice of God is created a place for those who break and ruin his good world. A place for those who sin. A place called hell. You see, the very scandal in the heart of God is not that he created a hell. A place deserved by all the scandal in the heart of God is that he made a way out. And God didn't provide a step-by-step -step guide to avoiding hell. No, in his heart he conceived a saviour. A saviour who would come and endure hell for us. A saviour who can be all, all of us. Anyone can have him if we have the humility to admit that it should have been us. So Jesus came to lift our sin. Every sin. And put it on himself. And then offer himself to the justice of God covered with all that is vile and dark in his people. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Not perish as we deserve in the never-ending torments of hell. But instead of that horror we deserve, we might get given eternal life in unending happiness with God. So Jesus went to the cross. And on that cross, he was crushed for our sin. 
And in his final moments on the cross, he cried out in a loud voice and he said, It is finished. See, verse 34, he said his food is to finish the work. And on that cross, the great, mighty work, the mighty work of saving sinners from hell, saving them for heaven, the work was finished. That's his food. He, the Lord Jesus is not reluctant in his task. The mission drives him. It's his passion, it's his delight. He feeds on it, it fills his heart. Do you know Jesus like that? As someone who sees you at your very worst, he knows you, he knows the darkest corners of your life and he, and, and he doesn't push you away and he doesn't ignore you and he doesn't scold. Instead, he made it his life work, his food, to complete the work of your salvation. And that fills his heart. He's not upset with you. He's not angry. He's not disappointed. He is so happy that he gets to be your saviour. Maybe we struggle to accept that. And if we do struggle to accept how happy he is to be your saviour, think about his love for his father. He loves his father so much. For all eternity, the son and the father have been joined in infinite love. And when Jesus came, he came because he loves his father. He came because he loves to do his father's will. And the father seeks true worshippers. He seeks the unlikely and the unnoticed and the, the overlooked, the undeserving. He seeks people like me and like you. And so he sent his son to take your sin. And that's what Jesus did. And he did it all the way. And he did it with a full heart and with a happy heart. He's so happy to be your saviour because his father's will for him is to do that work. Do you know Jesus like that? Well, in verse 35, the conversation shifts from food to harvests. And it doesn't really move on from Jesus talking about his work, from Jesus talking about his heart, but he, he shifts the image. He starts by asking the disciples about a saying that they have. The, the, the saying that they say is, it's still four months until harvest. And, and roughly the time between the end of sowing and the start of reaping, it was about four months. And the saying means, it's just going to take time. You, you can't rush it, you have to wait. It's, it's like the saying we have, Rome wasn't built in a day. It's helpful, isn't it? It's good wisdom, isn't it? Things take time, you have to go slow and and, and when you've sown the seed, you just leave it and then you go and get involved in other things. You can do other things for a time. But Jesus is saying that wisdom doesn't apply now. This is not a time to hold back. It's not a time to be distracted. Why? Verse 35. He says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Look, he says, right now, look. But what do the disciples see as they look? As they lift up their eyes and as they look out, what do they see? They see a crowd of people coming out of the Samaritan village, heading towards them. There's the harvest. It's right here. And the Father's purpose is to seek true worshippers. The mission of the Son, Jesus' food, is to finish the work. And the disciples are now called into that mission. Jesus is saying, you've got a part to play. Are you ready? In some ways, the, the woman herself is the model disciple here. She, she hears about eternal life. And rushes to others and says, come and see Jesus. 
And, and now Jesus is teaching his disciples to do the same. Or in fact, teaching all who find life in Jesus to have a share in the mission of Jesus, a mission he describes as harvesting. And, and he tells them things about this mission through the picture of a harvest. He says you have to look. You've got to open your eyes to the opportunity. That's what Jesus did at the well. A chance encounter, but that encounter, he sees the opportunity to talk about eternal life. And now Jesus is saying to the disciples, don't miss the opportunity. These Samaritan villagers, they're, they're coming. What, what do you see as you see this group of people coming? Is it just a pile of sand or is it potential for glory? Striking that they're Samaritans. The disciples wouldn't have thought about telling them about Jesus. Now, they're not going to be interested in hearing about our, our, our Jesus, are they? They're not going to want to know. There's no point telling them, is there? It's easy for us to do the same, isn't it? We think it's not really worth trying with some people. Jesus says, no, lift your eyes and look. What do you see? You've got to look. And he says the crop is a crop for eternal life. That's the harvest. It's eternal life. That's what's being reaped. That's how high the stakes are. Is that what we get when we see people? As C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people because all people are immortal. He said, you have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendours. People are not ordinary. People will last forever. That's a, a mighty reality to grapple with. There is nothing that is just a pile of sand. It is always a potential for horror or glory. And the work of Jesus and the work he shares with all who follow him is to bring a crop for eternal life. That's the urgency. It puts a spark into the command to look. Open your eyes and see and don't miss the opportunity. The stakes are as high as eternity. You can be quickly overwhelmed as we think on that. And the third thing he tells us about harvesting is that, is that it's a partnership. There's nothing easy about it. Sowing and reaping their back-breaking labours. In, in verse 38 he speaks about those who have done the hard work. Some parts of the work are harder than others, but it's all work. It requires effort. Different types of effort, but lots of effort. He, he puts another saying in there in verse 37. Well, one this time, he says, applies to this situation. It is, one sows and another reaps. Simple, isn't it? One sows, another reaps. Now, all those who follow Jesus have a share in his mission. But we all have got different parts to play. For some, it's that hard work of breaking the ground and plowing the ground and sowing the ground. For others, it's the work of reaping and threshing and gathering in the crop. The stakes are high. The, the task can seem overwhelming. But Jesus says it's not just down to one person. Now, nobody in, in that time would have done all the work of the crop themselves. The, the community shared the process. We've got to remember that. It's not all down to you, you you're not alone. Sometimes it feels like we are alone, doesn't it? Maybe the only Christian in our workplace or, or in our school or our family and we feel isolated and, and responsible. But it's not all on you. Yes, you have a part to play. You have to play the part with all your heart, but, but, but it's never going to be the whole part. At the end of 
verse 36, Jesus says, the sower and the reaper may be glad together. The joy of souls brought to eternal life will be shared by all the team. Verse 38 puts it nicely. It says to the disciples, you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Literally, it says, you have entered into their work. That's nice, isn't it? The work is shared. You enter into the work of one another. It's a, a partnership. See, there'll be some who have witnessed faithfully for years and they, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they worked hard and they saw nothing. And, and then someone else comes along and, and, and sees that person come to trust in Jesus. And in the end, there's going to be rejoicing all around because every part of the work is the work. Uh, last evening, we, were, um, we went to see my parents and it happened that their church was doing their kind of Christmas um, play thing, the Victorian Christmas. My dad was acting in it, so we went along and watched him play the part of Mr. Huntley or Mr. Palmer in Reading Biscuits. Um, anyway, um, we got there and um, Nikki was coming down the road and the person on the end of the road grabbed her and they, they started to have a conversation. They hugged. Um, turns out when, when Nikki was teaching in Reading, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago, um, there was a cleaner who worked at her school um, who, who Nikki got, got to talk to uh, the cleaner's daughter often came in, who was a teenager, and, and Nikki prayed for them at that time, and then didn't think anything of it. Um, but this last week, uh, she's been meeting with my dad, this daughter, and has given her life to Christ. Mm. One sows, another reaps. We don't know where it's going to end, do we? But we all share in the joy. Mm. See, as Jesus talks about harvest, he's really still talking about his food. That work given to him. The work he completed on the cross. He now wants everybody to benefit from it. So, so he sends his followers to bring in the crop of eternal life. He's saying to his followers, my food is to be your food. Look at the opportunity. Look how high the stakes are and work together. Work for this gladness of the harvest coming home. What about you? What's your food? What, what, what is it that drives and holds onto you? What, what will you give your life for? Do you want to give your life for something that will last forever? Well, this passage ends with people coming to see Jesus. Ends with well, part of the harvest being brought in, in verses 39 to 42. You see, the question in, in this last bit is we've seen the picture of what is to be done with the harvest. But what does it actually look like in practice? Well, these verses help us. You, you see here that many Samaritans believed in him. That's awesome, isn't it? Isn't that great? I want to read that casually. This is great. The, the end of chapter 3 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Well, here it is. It's happening. The Samaritans, it's a simple faith. They haven't had time to learn too much, but they learn enough to put their trust in Jesus. They, they learn enough that Jesus is someone they can really rely on. And they ask him to stay, and, and many more believe, many more receive this precious gift of eternal life. And they, they say to the woman, not only because of what you said, we've heard for ourselves, and we believe. Jesus taught his disciples with the, the picture of the harvest. But, but, but now we see it worked out in practice. What's the practical work of getting involved in the harvest? Well... The Samaritans believed in him, verse 39. They received eternal life. Why did they believe? They say, it says, it's because of the woman's testimony. No, no, literally, because of the word which the woman testified. And then, again, that they hear more from Jesus and more believe, and verse 41 says, they believe 
because of his words. The same phrase as in the previous verse, in, verse, in two verses before. Because of the word. He, the, the faith that they have, this belief, it comes from hearing the word about Jesus. So what's the work of the harvest? What is the sowing and the reaping? Well, the work is to sow the word about Jesus. And then to reap the word about Jesus. There's no other way for faith to come. The only way is through hearing the word about Jesus. It's what Paul says in Romans 10 when he says, all who believe on Jesus will have eternal life. But how can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? Because faith comes through hearing the word about Jesus. And so harvesters pray for the word to be heard. And then look for opportunities for the message of Jesus to be told. And testify to what they found out about Jesus. And then with persuasion and argument and explanation and declaration over and over again until those who hear believe in Jesus. And every harvester has a part to play. And for those who are trusting Jesus, it is the ongoing challenge in our lives. Jesus' work, what he has done, and the need to believe in him, all of it is brought to the world through his followers, through us. Weak and wobbly and jars of clay that we are. And we can find it hard to keep going, hard to get involved in the harvest. They're hard maybe because sometimes we just don't look up, do we? We're so busy looking at our feet, so busy, caught up in the busyness of life. And life can be so busy and overwhelming and we, we just don't see people. We don't see the opportunities to talk about Jesus because we're not looking for them. Now maybe, maybe sometimes we, we struggle to get involved because we lose sight of what is at stake. We think people are ordinary. We forget everybody is immortal. We forget that the word of Jesus is the offer of eternal life. Now I'm still undone by what a man said to me about 20 years ago. He, he said that there are two reasons why you don't tell people the good news about Jesus. Two, two possible alternatives. What, what, why you don't tell people about Jesus. The first one, he said, is because you don't know the good news about Jesus. And I thought, well, it can't be that because I, I pride myself on knowing stuff. So, so what's the second reason that I wouldn't tell people about Jesus? He said, it's because you don't love your friends. True, isn't it? It's true. Immortal horrors or immortal splendors. Everyone we ever meet. And the only difference, the only difference that will matter forever and ever is whether or not someone has come to believe in Jesus. But how can they believe if they haven't heard? The crop is for eternal life. The stakes are that high. But then maybe sometimes we don't get involved because it is just so overwhelming. We are weak. We're not, we're not gifted like that other person. We don't really know how to do it. Well, we might be missing that Jesus says in the harvest, there's one who sows and one who reaps. Everyone rejoices in the end, but it's not all on you. Play your part, play your part with all your heart, but don't try to do it all. We get to share together in this. The goal is the same, the work is the same, the food is the same, but God has uniquely designed you to do something. Do that thing. He's not made you to do everything. Now imagine you walk by a construction site and there's a couple of guys working there and you say to them, what are you doing? The first one says, I'm, I'm just shoveling sand. The second one says, no, we're not shoveling sand, we're building a home. And sometimes the part we play is small, isn't it? Unnoticed, it's hard work in the background. We can feel like we're just shoveling sand. 
But the sower and the reaper will rejoice together. The different efforts are all needed to make the home. Now we can find it hard to get involved in the harvest. But I wonder whether in our passage the main help for us is when we look again at the example of this Samaritan woman. And as it's see, verse 39, we hear again her strange testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. And she's shouting about it, telling everyone. I met a man and he knows the very worst about me. All my darkest secrets. He knows everything. Now why does she shout about it? Why is that something to shout about? Well, at the end of Jesus' visit, the Samaritans conclude in verse 42. They say, we know that this man, the man who knows everything, really is the saviour of the world. Jesus is the saviour of the world. In Isaiah 45, God says, There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And here he is, in John chapter 4, in the flesh, the only God who is the only saviour. And he's calling all the world to turn to him and be saved. That's why the woman could say, come and meet him. He knows my worst and he is the saviour. My worst will not define my forever because there is one who saves. Now imagine what it would be like if he only knew us at our best. Imagine if he only knew us at our Sunday best and we're all dressed up and we're all acting nice. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a tragedy? Wouldn't that be so hopeless? What if he suddenly found out what we were really like? What if those skeletons we buried in the closet actually came out? Surely then he would turn away from us. That's not the case at all, is it? Our God loves us so much that when we were still sinners, when we were in the mode of God rejection and God hating and in our hearts we were still spitting on his face and cursing his name and we had no interest in him at all, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He knows your worst better than you do. And he wants to be your saviour. Now if he can save someone like me, there is no limit to how far his saving can reach. There's no limit to where we can look for the harvest. Among the Samaritans? Yes. To the ends of the earth? Yes. In our communities? Yes. Do you know Jesus like this woman did? Ask yourself that. Do you know Jesus like she did? He sees the depths of my heart and he loves me the same. Now why do you want to keep that to ourselves? You know, if there's even just the slightest spark in us, even just the slightest spark of wanting to say, come and see Jesus. Let's fan that into flame. Let's pray that we will know this Jesus, that we will, like like the old hymn, we will say, happy if with my latest breath I can but gasp his name. Preach him to all and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. Do you know Jesus like this woman did? I want to spend a moment in quiet reflecting on that. And then we'll see.